This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We've got a few innovators joining us over the next couple of hours in education, food insecurity, climate change, and more. Also, a few fraudsters, courtesy of this week's Bloomberg Business Week special heist issue. And in this hour, two of the hardest hit parts of our world by the health pandemic and global economic shutdown. We're talking about restaurants and the cruise industry. You'll hear from the CEOs of P.F. Chang's and Royal Caribbean on reopening and getting back to business. All of that to come, we begin with a look, though, at this week's issue of the magazine. It's the fourth annual heist issue that makes for perfect summer reading. And we checked in with the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber, for more on the issue and how it all came to be. The heist issue is the best issue, as I like to say. Uh, it's really like a thing that we look forward to all year long. It's, this is our fourth annual one that we've done like this. Can't believe it. Another cover to cover special. And it, it is what we think of as like the perfect summer beach read. We want to just Fill it with stuff that you'll spend the rest of the summer reading on the beach. So take a step back, go four years back. How did this come to be? Well, there are a couple stories that I um, had noticed were really interesting, even before I was the editor of Business Week. And I was like, you know, the thing that they have in common, these are heist stories. <laughs> and I was like, do I put them in the same issue? Do I not? And uh, when I became editor, I was like, well, here's an idea. How about we just take all these great heist stories and put them in a single issue? And that gave us the heist issue. So how does it, when you're thinking about the next issue, what are some of the conversations you're having with some of the editors, some of the reporters about, or, or do stories all of a sudden cross your desk and you're like, this is going to be a heist story? So that happens sometimes. <laughs> um, Max Chapkin is the real brain of the heist issue. So tons of credit to him. He's like a fabulous editor. And, you know, this is one of his like marquee moments, I think. Um, so Max and I just have conversations year-round where we start to see things happen, and we're like, that'd be a good high story, that'd be a good high story. <laughs> For instance, there's a story in this issue about um, copper and this amazing copper heist that happened uh, between Turkey and China. And that happened, and we were like, boy, this is interesting. Is there more that we can unravel here? And it became and, this. And it became a comic, right. right? So we try and think about it not only in terms of like the style of heist or scam, fraud, um, but also, how do we bring that to life as a story? And some of those will be narratives, and others can be infographics or comics, even. How did the pandemic impact kind of your thinking about the heist issue? Well, it or turns did it? out, yeah, it's, it turns out that the pandemic has been really good for fraudsters and, and heists <laughs> in general. So there's been a lot of crime. When you think about the heist issue in the biggest sense, it's really a true crime issue, right? And it turns out that criminals have been very busy during the past year. All kinds of scams um, with everybody being at home. That means your computer, your more, more likely your phone's vulnerable. And so we tried to actually like bring that spirit into the issue too because it is zeitgeist. Everyone's yeah. sort of been exposed to stuff or heard about things that, that they're interested in. And so we try and kind of think about it in a very zeitgeisty pop culture kind of way as well. You know, it's fun reading through the stories too because I do feel like you have reporters and editors who are going through a lot of court documents, a lot of legal filings. I mean, this is kind of what it's all about. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that we noticed this year is that there were a lot of stories that actually involved court cases, which um, are legal department was thrilled about because it actually gave us something that we could point to and say, hey, this is based on something. Right. So uh, one of the ones that I, I thought was most interesting um, to that end was uh, about BEC scams, which is the business email compromise. 
a character named Hush Puppy who allegedly perfected this scam. It's an incredibly simple scam where just one little digit gets changed and a bank wires money and it goes to the wrong account. And you would think that that would be a really easy thing to squelch and it turns out that it's a bigger problem than ransomware, which ransomware gets right. all the headlines and yet here's this other thing that no one wants to talk about because it's such a simple problem that businesses face all the time. Any story that you found kind of surprising? Well, I, I like the Lupin story, which is our, our cover story, uh, just because it, it's not literally about a heist, but it's about Netflix, which recognized mm -hmm. that this is a genre and them being such an international business, they really needed an international uh, franchise and and Lupin and it's uh, the French star Omar C became kind of attractive. Can <laughs> I just say <laughs> became became that and it's not only a high story in that it's uh, about you know a character who does heist, but it's also about Omar and how he fell for Lupin as a character, which is a hundred plus year old character in France that he sort of reimagined. So great artists always steal, and and that inspired this this year's cover. Any other stories? you want to highlight? You know, there's a, a horse racing story that we did that I think is a really interesting one because it shows how um, a heist in the traditional sense, you think of like somebody robbing a bank vault. Yeah. Well, there's other forms of heist. And, and this is one of them to me, which is a great untold story about um, the jockey club and one of the characters at the jockey club who just got fed up with what he felt was a, a doping problem, but was really unable to put his finger on it. And that led to a huge investigation that has had dramatic implications for the sport. Um, and we think that there might be a near future where the sport is cleaned up in a way that it hasn't been for a while. And the heist element there to me is that you have uh, some nefarious actors who have basically bamboozling a lot of, of, of betters, of sports betters, right? And, and now that we have some clarity into how they were pulling off uh, their, their scam, um, it, it makes for a great tell-all. That was the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber. More on the heist issue to come, including the fall of the billionaire Gucci master. Coming up next, though, P.F. Chang's goes all in on to-go. The company's CEO explains. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. The restaurant industry battered by the pandemic, you know that, and many had to pivot fast. That included P.F. Chang's, which opened its first of three P.F. Chang's to-go locations in New York City last fall. It's a smaller format, offering takeout, delivery, and catering. The company is also doing the same in other major U.S. cities. We got more on their strategy and how the industry overall is doing and changing as a result of the health pandemic. From Damola Adamalakin, he's CEO of P.F. Chang's. He's also partner at former Treasury Secretary Secretary Hank Paulson's firm, Paulson & Company, and Triartisan Capital Advisors. It's been a bit of a whirlwind, as you can imagine. So, you know, we uh, ramped down our dining business, you know, last year in, in conjunction with the government mandates. Uh, you know, we worked through that. We drove our off-premise business. Uh, we've gone through the worst of it. We're on the rebound now. Um, and so excited to be in a position where we've, we've gone through the storm and we're coming out on the other side. Well, storms and moments of crisis sometimes teach us an awful lot of things or figure out strategies that we were maybe thinking about, mulling over, and then all of a sudden we're like, we got to do them. How did the pandemic impact your thinking about what your business needs to be going forward? 
Absolutely. So, you know, we, we, we identified off-premise dining as a key area of focus for us prior to the pandemic. And so we opened our first to-go actually in February of last year, which coincidentally was about a month before to-go became the only way you could eat. Was that Chicago um, that you did that? that was, correct. That was mm-hmm. in Chicago, it was in River North, Chicago. Um, and so, you know, we'd seen that growth and, and consumers were shifting towards off-premise prior to, prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. It accelerated dramatically. Um, obviously, with, with, you know, first of all, being forced to use it. But now even as dining has come back, we've seen that off-premise continues to grow. So people have really changed their behavior in a much more permanent way than uh, just temporarily as induced by COVID. Well, I want to ask you, you keep saying off-premise. So you're talking about takeout, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry. So off-premise <laughs> means takeout, but it also means delivery. So you don't okay. actually come to the restaurant. You maybe order on RPF Chang's app or website or on one of the third-party apps. And it also means catering. So, you know, a big event that you get catered, uh, whether you call that in, order on the website, on, on the app. Um, so it's, it's takeout, delivery, and catering is what we call off-premise. So what's doing the strongest? Is it takeout and just in general or delivery? Takeout's the biggest, of the, mm-hmm. of the, is biggest business out of those, but the, the most growth has come through delivery, uh, and specifically de- delivery through our channels, so through mm. our website and through our app. Um, and, and part of that is purposeful. That's where we've, we've focused on, on growing the most. You know, it allows us to interact directly with the consumer. It gets them the best experience. Um, and and it, it creates that one-on-one relationship that, that we cherish. Um, so we focused on growing that. People have enjoyed, you know, coming directly to us. Uh, and that's been the highest growth area, even though takeout is the biggest business of, of the three. Well, it's interesting you talk about delivery because there's all those services, right? And, and that has definitely been a pandemic play as everybody was delivering takeout. But when you use those services, right, you lose a piece of your business. So if you can keep it in-house on your own platforms, uh, first of all, as you said, you're directly involved with the consumer, but it's also then you get a bigger piece of the pie. That's correct. That's correct. You don't pay the fees, right? We, now, we have to deliver or, or you know, solve for delivery, whether we pay somebody to do it on our behalf, like True. a DoorDash, or do it ourselves. But you, it's, still, it's still more cost-effective overall, you know, absolutely. Um, but, you know, in addition to that, there's the question of being able to know who our guest is and know what they order and, and uh, be able to identify them when they come into a restaurant, if they ordered from us on delivery a week ago. So there's, there's an important data and, and co- consumer loyalty and analytics piece of it um, that we get by working directly with the guest. Um, and then finally, we can, we can give them a better price overall. Uh, because the third parties have to charge a certain amount of delivery fees to kind of make their model work. Uh, we're able to do a lot better, frankly, because um, there's there's no middleman to, to deal with. So, you know, for a number of reasons, it's a better experience for the guests and it's in a better uh, situation for us. And so that's where we've kind of focused um, our attention in terms of growth. What kind of activity are you seeing here in New York? Because we're trying to assess what's going on in terms of people coming back to work. Just initially, what kind of demand are you seeing, especially for lunch? We're seeing it start to rebound. You know, I'm, I'm starting to see more catering orders come, which is a, a wonderful sign. And uh, starting to see more lunch traffic pick up. Uh, you know, office was about five to ten percent occupied through the first quarter of this year. Mm-hmm. That's starting to pick up. Um, you know, our, our feeling is that Labor Day is kind of a, a, a flag, a, a marker that's been planted in terms of when folks will really start to come back into the office post summer holidays, et cetera. Uh, so we're seeing improvement, but really, I think the step function improvement will occur. Uh, likely around Labor Day, and that that should be a wonderful time for for all of us, in, you know, who live in or visit New York City. Damola, where do you go from here? How much do you expand this smaller model that you folks are doing at PF Chang's? This two go locations, uh, you know, around the country. 
you know, we're going to uh, ramp up the openings for, for that concept. It's been met with a lot of uh, great enthusiasm in the markets where we've opened it. Um, so we're intending to, to have 20 open by the end of this year. Wow. Uh, we have eight, eight at present. So we have, um, you know, we have about 12 that, that we're going to open, you know, for the rest of the year. Uh, and that's going to be mostly concentrated in the Dallas and the uh, Florida markets. Uh, we have one actually opening next week in Las Colinas in, in Dallas. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's the plan. And then going forward from, for next year, we'll open about 30 and, and, and ramp up this concept uh, you know, fairly quickly here. Um, and to be able to reach more consumers in more parts of the country a lot more quickly. Is the end game also the ultimately spinning this puppy off and going public? No, not to spin it off. So we manage this. Uh, you know, the, the, the secret sauce here is that it's the same exact P.F. Chang's food. It's the same kitchen, staffed by the same people. You know, you can move a chef from a, a traditional bistro to a to-go and vice versa, and it's the same recipes. Um, you know, we, we share technology. They're managed by the same multi-unit mm -hmm. uh, managers which makes the model really work, right? Um, you, can, you can guarantee quality and you can guarantee consistency. Uh, so separating the business would, would kind of go against what's making it work. So it's not in the plans. It's going gonna, it's gonna to remain co-managed and, and co, uh, cohabitated here at, in Scottsdale. Um, uh, in terms of, you know, going public or capital plans, you know, that's still under, under you know, conversation. You know, P.F. Chang's once upon a time was public and went right. private in 2012. Um, so it has a history in the public markets. It's kept a lot of the infrastructure in terms of, um, you know, the reporting standards, et cetera. So it's something that's a viable alternative. But, you know, we'll, we'll watch and we'll see and we'll continue to manage the business and, and, and see what comes going forward. What's the biggest change in the real estate space as a result of the pandemic that stays with us? Is it just that real big jump onto digital platforms? You know, it was interesting during the pandemic, Damola, that there were upscale restaurants that would never do takeout that all of a sudden were doing takeout. Sure. Yeah. A lot of folks are forced to learn, you know, again, fortunately, it's something we knew how to do coming into the pandemic. It had been an area of focus for us. You know, you mentioned I used to work at partners, uh, Paulson. So I was mm -hmm. part of the, you know, I, I led the transaction to acquire PF Chang's. And so, you know, that was part of our thesis when we bought the company uh, was that off-premise was going to be a key part of the future. It was going to drive growth. So we spent a year kind of building out the infrastructure. So it's been part of our core thesis prior to COVID, and that's really worked out, obviously, even though nobody saw COVID coming. But we did have the infrastructure in place uh, to, to allow us to transition guests to off-premise mm -hmm. pretty seamlessly. That was Demola Adamalakin, CEO of P.F. Chang's. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, from one hard-hit industry to another, the CEO of Royal Caribbean Cruises on getting back to the high seas from U.S. ports. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Another really hard-hit industry during the pandemic was the cruise industry, which is slowly getting clearances to set sail again, and that includes from U.S. shores. Last weekend, Royal Caribbean successfully launching its first revenue-generating sailing out of the U.S., with more coming. We caught up with Richard Fain. He's the chairman and CEO of Royal Caribbean Cruises, and we did so as he was aboard the Celebrity Edge cruise ship that was docked at the time in Costa Maya, Mexico. This has been uh, beyond our our hopes. Uh, my first sense was when I came on board and the crew were just so excited to start seeing people. Uh, we've been talking to the guests who are just over the moon. 
Um, this is important. It's, it's just the first cruise, but it's a symbolic one because um, it shows that we're starting. We have the second cruise out of the United States, another ship. So we're back and uh, looks like we're heading to, uh, to be back in a good shape. It feels like steps towards normalcy. Having said that, most people will say there's no way going back. We are a change world and society. So how do you do it safely for both your crew and your passengers? I've spent time on one of those massive cruise ships. There's a lot of people in their huge ships, but it's a lot of people in what is a relatively small contained space. Well, you know, 15 months ago, being in a contained space was a concern because remember, we didn't have vaccines. We didn't even have testing. Uh, if you think back, the CDC was advising against wearing face masks. Mm-hmm. Um, we were really in, in, in a bad world. And over the last 15 months, we've had the opportunity of working with, with um, specialists, with experts, to really look at what would make it safer. And all the things um, that were concerned 15 months ago and made us voluntarily stop operating now work in our favor. So unlike going into a movie theater or a restaurant or a theme park, we know everybody who's coming on board. And we can take the time to make sure that they're vaccinated and tested, uh, et cetera. So uh, on this ship, uh, on all of our ships, every crew member is vaccinated. Um, um, all the adults have to be vaccinated on, on this ship. Um, we have some children who aren't eligible for the vaccine. Mm-hmm. But the net result is that 99% beyond board is vaccinated. So that's the first line of defense. But the second one, as, as you pointed out before, um, people aren't as much worried about getting sick as they're worried about somebody else getting sick and joining their vacation and them being quarantined or what have you. Mm-hmm. So we set up the procedures. We've um, set up procedures with the public health system, with hospitals, with everything else. So if we have a case, we can do contact tracing in a way you can't do on shore. We can isolate in a way you can't do on shore. And so a case doesn't become an outbreak. It just becomes a few people who are set aside, flown home, and everybody else carries on with their vacation. And that's you can't do that on land. On land, those people would just continue to infect other people, and um, you have no way to separate them out. And that process is working, Richard? I mean, have you, you've had some cases, is that correct? I thought I read something about some kids or something, but it's happened and the, the systems have kicked into place and everything's worked. Exactly. Um, by the way, remember, although this is our first cruise out of the United States, we've carried 150 or 175,000 mm-hmm. people around the world during the period, and we've had cases because... You can't eliminate it. You can't eliminate it on land, and you can't eliminate it at sea. But um, we got a few cases, and just like the ones you mentioned, they were isolated, no must, no fuss, didn't bother everybody else's vacation, and we flew them home. Um, and that's really the objective is right. keep the number very low and then take care of the, that low number. You expect most ships to be sailing by the end of the year. Are you, though, Richard, anticipating that the spread of the Delta variant will slow down your ability to reopen and reach all the ports that you were in pre-pandemic? Well, I think we keep watching all of the things, including the variants and including the Delta variant, which today is the one that we're most focused on. But remember, a couple months ago, we were equally focused on the Alpha variant. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But we are watching it, and we will continue to get 
the right guidance. Uh, it does appear from everything we're seeing that the vaccines that we have here in the United States are effective, including against the Delta variant. So the trick is to get more people vaccinated. And by having cruises where people are vaccinated and are freer to function, it also motivates people to get vaccinated. So right. uh, I, I feel that's good, too. That's Richard Fain, chairman and CEO of Royal Caribbean Cruises. Ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, catalysts who are accelerating solutions to today's greater problems, including the founder of Grow Intelligence, who is tapping vast amounts of data to make sure we can keep feeding the world. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg New Economy Forum was established back in 2018 by Michael Bloomberg. It was all about bringing together a community of global leaders engaging with the world's most significant changes and challenges. Michael Bloomberg, of course, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Bloomberg LP, of course, home to Bloomberg Radio. This week, the inaugural class of Bloomberg New Economy Catalyst was introduced. It's a new global community of public and private sector innovators and entrepreneurs accelerating solutions to today's greatest problems. One of the cat- Analyst Sarah Manker. She's a former commodities trader at Morgan Stanley. She is now founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence, which gathers large amounts of data and then uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to tackle global crises, including addressing food security and climate change for the company's clients, which, by the way, range from food producers and suppliers to governments and the financial world. Here's our conversation. Grow Intelligence is a company I I founded um, in 2014, and it really is a story at the end of the day that tells the story of what on earth is going on. Um, And I say that because, you know, oftentimes we use data to to tell stories. Um, And oftentimes when we think of earth, it, you know, we think of satellite images just showing us pictures of our earth, whereas earth is sort of this interplay between our Earth's actual ecology and our human economy and the interrelationships between the two. And what we've done is we've built um, a data platform using artificial intelligence to capture sort of data around the world about our Earth as well as our human economy, connect the dots and start to tell stories about things like you know, where the trajectory of food security is going or how to um, become better resilient to climate change. Um, and, and really, it's a company focused on tackling these two major problems, which is essentially around food security and climate change at a global scale. Huge issues, right, that obviously impact everybody. Data collection can be good, it can be bad, right? It can be biased. So tell me how you go about it. Yeah, it's garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so we, we say curated by human intelligence scaled through artificial intelligence. And I think this is a really important part of how we do our work, but how AI should be done, which is that you need domain experts, you need humans Mm -hmm. that first actually assess the data in the very early days, because as you're collecting data and you're getting data, you know, we get data from over 45,000 different sources around the world, and it comes in many languages. private, public, everything. Governments, private companies that we license from, um, trade organizations, you know, all sorts of, and then they come in many different formats and languages. And you need human experts initially that sort of do the assessment of the data, um, that, that, that document it, that, that map the definition of it, that help create the dictionary. Mm-hmm. 
And then you start to use artificial intelligence to scale the mapping of that knowledge to better understand the interconnectedness that exists um, through the data. But it always really starts with the human intelligence component that helps with sort of the curation in the beginning. Right. And then you let the machines take over. And this makes your predictive models work better. It makes the knowledge graphs, the systems of sort of how we understand today work significantly better as well. It's a diverse group. I know speaking many different languages. Very. <laughs> yes. But it's good, right? Because you're dealing with a global, you know, global issues. Yeah. I, I always say, um, you know, your team has to resemble the world it's attempting to model. I can hear your commodities background playing into this. What was it about your background in commodities and being in the Wall Street financial community that made, that kind of got you to where you are today and said, all right, there are bigger issues, bigger problems. We need the tools to tackle it. Yeah, I mean, it played a huge role. Um, I was an energy trader. And in the early days of sort of energy trading, if you had an oil producer that um, would come to the market and say, you know, I've discovered oil and I need to now produce this oil and I need some money for it. Mm -hmm. So therefore I need to sell it forward to you. And selling oil two years forward used to be a struggle. By the time I left, you know, oil producers, gas producers, et cetera, could sell oil 10, 20 years forward long before it was outside the, gr uh, outside the ground. Mm -hmm. Financial markets enabled that. And, to, you know, for markets to develop, you need trust, you need baseline understanding, and then people have their relative competitive advantage, right? Because what that does is it drives capital into markets right. and capital drives innovation and innovation drives very long-term change. Renewable energy, shale oil, shale gas, all of these technologies we take for granted had to be funded some way. And I had seen that agriculture was and still is, frankly, where maybe energy markets were in, if I'm being kind, like the early 90s. <laughs> so, <laughs> they were behind, right? They need, they're yeah. very behind. Right. Um, and so, you know, when you think of what happened in COVID last year, during COVID, and all of the shocks the system experienced when, you know, people were saying, are we running out of meat? Uh, you know, why are, you know, certain things just flying off shelves? And is there a shortage? That was really a function of how short-term the food markets actually behave, meaning mm -hmm. decisions are still being made day-to-day, week-to-week by grocers. Mm -hmm. um, and if you take the most liquid agricultural market in the world, which is corn in the U.S., you're lucky if you can sell it two years forward, right? So that to me is, is how do you drive structural change around that? Well, it's interesting you bring up the pandemic too, because there were many people that were forecasting you were going to have some kind of health pandemic four years, and yet it was, you know, a tragedy and we were caught off guard. Are we kind of doomed as a society or as you do the work that you're doing, are we providing the tools that can help people be better prepared? Because when we think about the climate or we think about food accessibility, I'm hearing from major players in the industry that, you know, they're looking at maybe a few years or a couple of decades where we could be facing some really difficult situations in feeding the world. We already are, actually. <laughs> yes. I mean, the biggest topic today around the world is food inflation. I right. mean, right. inflation is a major sort of a point of sort of stress for every major economy around the world, including the U.S. But in the U.S., it's a little more transient. Um, in places like Brazil and Russia and China and 
all around sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East, you're looking at, you know, year-on-year -year food basket prices being up 20, 30, 40 percent right. on top of major currency devaluations. Like, we are not in a good place as a world today as it is when it comes to sort of the fragility of our food systems. Mm -hmm. And to that, you add climate shocks, which is the frequency, you know, because when we think of climate change, there's, you know, sort of like the, the first part is obviously, yes, it's warmer temperatures, but it's what is the distribution of that? Right. And um, what's the volatility? associated right. with sort of the weather patterns themselves. And so predict when predictability goes down, that's never a good thing for society, right? And so I do believe companies like Grow are doing our part in trying to sort of open people's eyes. And that's why I say it's like the story of what on earth is going on. Um, because when you're talking about food security, it is about better understanding our food systems as a real world system, a live, living, breathing system with many different nodes that are interacting and right. thinking of it that way. And when it comes to climate change, it's about better understanding, you know, under different CO2 scenarios, because it's, it's you know, data is the world sharing its experience. And it's a, you know, chronicle of the past, the present and the future. The past and the present are certain. We know them. The future is only probable. Right. And with climate change, it's a set of probable outcomes that we need to manage for. And that requires a huge amount of translation of science right. into actionable insights. Right. And I think we're getting there, but it, it's how do you drive change? How well, do you get people to do that? Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, talk to us a little bit about the clients that you work with. I mean, they are getting these data sets from you. They have specific you know, problems that they're trying to, tackling, to tackle, a lot of it with climate change, a lot with food accessibility. Is it making an impact? Are people taking the data and taking the actions to improve the outcome? Yeah, I mean, and let me talk a lot about sort of three segments of, of clients we work with. Um, first is sort of corporates. Mm -hmm. And, and when, when I say corporates, I talk about, you know, very small companies that are trading in one or two agricultural products pretty locally to some of the world's largest corporations um, that are sort of central to our food systems. And what we're doing with sort of the bigger corporations is saying, how do you actually operate differently? How do you understand sort of end to end your supply chains better mm -hmm. and better sort of build resiliency? You know, you increase your margins as a business, but you also increase sort of predictability in terms of a surety of supply and prices that you could produce and, and all of that, right. right? And so it's, it's really sort of about changing operations, helping drive R&D towards where the future of food is going, right? Because you're investing billions of dollars thinking about what's next in my right. pipeline. And you want to be on the right Exactly. Path. That's Sarah Manker, founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. Catch that entire conversation and more from our group of Bloomberg New Economy Catalysts by heading to neweconomyforum.com slash catalyst. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. Now, as you just heard, Sarah Manker of Grow Intelligence is working to solve food insecurity and climate change. Coming up in the next hour, we've got another individual who's working on solving public problems, specifically government and how that can change our world. World. We're going to talk with the former U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Open Government during the Obama administration, Beth Simone Novick. She'll join us on her new book. And speaking of more problem solving, Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy, has been helping kids solve problems, actual problems, in math, science, English, and so much more before, during, and now post-pandemic. We're going to check in with him. And one Statue of Liberty, amazing. Two of them, 
incomprehensible. But that's exactly what we got from France. Jesse Brackenberry, President and CEO of the Liberty Ellis Island Foundation, stops by on this holiday weekend as we celebrate the birth of the United States. All of that to come in the next hour on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Master. My co-host Tim Stenovic is off this week. Plenty ahead coming up in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including the former Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Open Government who led President Obama's Open Government Initiative on her new book, Solving Public Problems, a practical guide to fix our government and change our world. Plus Al Khan, founder of Khan Academy and summer school programs that make a difference. And the Statue of Liberty gets a little twin sister. We'll explain. First up this hour, another story from this week's special heist issue, which is about someone you might have seen smiling in front of one of his Ferraris or Rolls Royces, kicking back in his seat on a private jet or exiting a designer store with an array of rope-handled bags from Hermes, Fendi, or Louis Vuitton. Yeah, we wanted to know more. So we checked in with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and the reporter who wrote the story, Businessweek freelance writer and contributor Evan Ratliff, who kicked off our conversation by telling us about the billionaire Gucci master. The billionaire Gucci master is uh, a guy named Ramon Abbas is his real name. He, he went by Ray Hushpuppy online or his handle was Hushpuppy. Um, he was an Instagram influencer he had a couple of million followers. He was known for his portrayals of luxury. He was always photographed in you know, designer clothes, standing in front of Rolls Royces, Ferraris that he had bought, uh, living a very opulent lifestyle. He lived in Dubai. Uh, he had been born in Nigeria, but he had moved to Dubai. And uh, that was who he was for the world. He was uh, a kind of a small, small celebrity. He hung out with other celebrities. Um, but as it turned out, uh, he is alleged to be also involved in, in some of the big cyber scams of the last few years. What did he do that put him uh, and gave him a place in the heist issue? Well, his, uh, his reason for being in the heist issue is that he is alleged by the U.S. government uh, to have participated in some of the largest cyber scams of the last few years. Uh, under the name business email compromise scams. That's what they're called. Mm -hmm. um, and he's alleged to be a person who moved large sums of money uh, as part of these scams. And some of the targets of the scams were, were enormous, including they were uh, trying to steal $100 million, over $100 million from a Premier League soccer team. Uh, they were stealing from businesses in the U.S., law firms, other businesses, and they were tracking him. They eventually arrested him in Dubai, and he's facing trial in Los Angeles. And I want to bring in the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber. This is just a fascinating tale, but it's not a tale. It's true. I mean, that's the best part of the, about the heist <laughs> issue. Um, and, you know, Evan, um, this, as I tweeted earlier, you know, in the history of the heist issue, this goes down as like maybe one of the very best heist stories. One of the things that captivated me about it is this idea that you know BEC scams, which I know you 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 just briefly hit on here, they're bigger than ransomware, and like no one wants to talk about them because they're such a big problem. Like, like put put that in perspective. I mean, to, to think about this being bigger than ransomware is a little bit of a mind blower, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really flies under the radar a bit because it's just it's it doesn't hit the news for one reason. You know, ransomware is very dramatic. You know, someone's being held hostage or they have the money. And BEC scam is a more it's a more technical scam. We can go into how, how it works exactly. But part of the problem is that if you just transfer money to a scammer and you've been tricked into doing it, you know, no, no company wants to talk about that. If you're a public company, you, you might have to disclose it if the, if the number's large enough, but no one else is going to talk about that because then you lose the trust of your customers, of your suppliers, of your clients. It seems like you're completely incompetent if you're doing this, when in fact, it's a very, very clever way to extract money from companies. Okay, so let's just talk about it a little bit more because it is so simple, right? That's the problem with it. It's like it, you, to defend against this. I mean, it, it, it's incredibly difficult because all it takes is somebody changing a digit. If you're doing this as a day job, all of these orders are flying around all the time. How, how, does it, uh, how do they pull it off? So the way it works in its sort of most simplest form is it's business email compromise. So obviously they compromise an email and that's usually going to be they're breaking into a corporate email account at a, some decently sized company. They want to hit someone mid-level or above, hopefully someone who's interacting with big payments. And they'll research the companies to try to figure out who that is. Once they're inside the email, they're just going to wait. They're just going to sit there, watch the traffic, watch what comes in and out, try to learn how the payments work. And then when a large invoice hits, let's say a law firm has an invoice for a million dollars, then that's when they insert themselves. So they know exactly how to create a fake invoice that's going to look real. They'll immediately send it as a follow-up. They'll change the bank details to their own and say, here's a new invoice. Sorry, that one had the wrong bank details on it. And because they're coming from inside an email account, they have all the details right, they have the language right, oftentimes people who are doing these payments, just they just overlook it. Uh, they just, they're doing many of these a day, potentially, or at least a week. And so they hit yes on the payment, they authorize it to the bank, and then it's immediately gone from the, the scammer's bank account to another one overseas, to another one overseas, and the money becomes impossible to trace. So hush puppy, let's bring it back to uh, the, the. Can I just say that again? Hush puppy, let's bring it back to hush puppy. I want a nickname like that. Um, uh, Evan, what is your name? Your, your code name? Did you have a code name for the story? <laughs> I did use a code name. I I love Ray Hush Puppy. It's just it's so enticing. I mean, it's a brilliant Instagram name uh, because it just it conveys something that you just want to learn more about Ray Hushpuppy. Got to say, can't help but feel that that story, that reality, is coming to a streaming service or big screen near you sometime in the future. That was Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber and Business Week freelance writer and contributor Evan Ratliff. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still to come, how fixing our government could solve the world's problems. It's the subject of a new book that includes tips on how to do it. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, our loyal followers know that we love, I love talking about innovation and disruption impacting our world, our investment world, everything. Our next guest has spent her career looking at innovation as well and how it intersects with government. Beth Simone Novick is the first chief innovation officer of the state of New Jersey. She was the U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Open Government and led President Obama's Open Government Initiatives at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. She's got a new book out. It's entitled Solving Public Problems, a practical guide to fix our government and change our world. Here's our conversation. 
my background, I have been both a professor of engineering and a professor of law, and I've had the pleasure to serve in government both at the federal level and now at the state level and work with international governments around the world in my capacity as director of the GovLab. And that's where we've gotten to see, and especially something we've all witnessed now during COVID, we've gotten to see countless failures and bungles, really the problems that happen, that happen when government doesn't work well. But at the same time, we've gotten to also see a lot of successes, and we've come, I think, to really realize how important it is to how uh, how important it is to really have government that works. So, in my own background, especially when I was in the Obama administration, we got to see how much of a difference it made when people started to do things like use open data, which we were putting online for the first time to help solve problems in a more evidence way what it meant uh, to actually use new technology to then go out and engage with citizens to use what some people call human-centered design, to really ask citizens about the problems that we're facing and how we can deliver services that work for them better. It's something that we now do regularly in our work in the state of New Jersey. Right. So we really got to see about what it meant to work differently and how important those different working practices are to innovating and to improving how we solve problems. So Beth, I have to ask you, as a member, me, as a citizen of the United States, as someone who has lived in New Jersey her whole life, I have seen a fair amount of dysfunction in government. Does government work right now? And if it doesn't, in your view, or are there ways that it could work better in your view? Well, again, there are lots of things, there are lots of success stories that I can tell you. Um, but at the same time, regardless of those stories, most people today feel that government is a clumsy, bungling giant that is not in a position to spend its money well, as we stand poised today to have one of the largest federal budgets since World War One. really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of us are very concerned about how government spends our money. And, you know, that's reflected in the poll numbers, which over not just since COVID, but over a generation have seen declining rates of trust in government. So as many things as are going right, and we're all looking around us as New York and New Jersey are reopening, obviously, and we're all happy, maybe not to be out in the heat, but happy to be uh, able to leave our houses at least um, uh, and go to a restaurant and whatnot. We see the benefits again of when things work, but we know that they could work better than they're doing today, and especially we know that we need to take advantage of the tools we have available today, big data, new technology, uh, um, human-centered design, again, innovations in ways of working that we need to adapt and adopt in order to do a better job at solving problems. Well, does the pandemic and everything that kind of how it played out, and obviously this was in many ways, a black swan event. But nonetheless, the inequities that were laid bare once again, there weren't new problems. Is that an indication that government hasn't been working as well as it could, that we still have such incredible gaps in our society? Absolutely. So I think COVID brought a lot of this into relief. But the acute challenges we saw during COVID, whether it was the public health crises, exploding unemployment, rampant racial inequity, just amplify the long-term and chronic inequalities we've been seeing, whether it's climate change or whether it's economic inequality, we have tremendous challenges ahead of us that we need to do better at fixing. So as well as we might have done things up until now, and that's a debatable point, we really need to do better if we're going to respond to the tremendous crises that we're facing. There's a lot here, um, Beth, and I do wonder, you know, one chapter, I just love the headline of it, the government that governs least governs best. Is that an argument for smaller government or just more effective government or government with real leadership? 
or a little bit of both? Uh, you're you're, you're on to exactly what I'm getting at. We've had a generation-long debate about bigger versus smaller government. I think that's really a red herring. It distracts us from the idea that we need to have better government, and frankly, not just government. It's business. It's activists and students and every one of us as well as our government that needs to really develop the skills, I would argue, Mm. for being more effective at solving public problems. So a lot of us these days really want to, you know, man the barricades. There's a lot of demand for social change. But I think the ability to go from demanding change to really making it happen, to cross that chasm from idea to implementation is Mm -hmm. something that I think a lot of us find very difficult wherever it is that we work, whether it's in the private or the public sector. Well, when you look at something like climate change, we we talked earlier um, with Sarah Manker. She's created this company called um, Grow Intelligence, and she was a former commodities trader. She's a Bloomberg New Economy Catalyst, and she basically is gathering tons of global data using AI machine learning to tackle things like food security issues and climate change. And, And her customers are food suppliers, food producers, governments, the financial world. You know, these are some really big problems that if we don't tackle, we're all going to be not in a good way. So I do wonder about, in particular, I guess what I wanted to ask you was the use of data, smart data, to get us to a better place. Absolutely. I think, you know, every day we were glued to the television screen or the radio to hear, you know, the governors or the mayors of our communities show the graphs with rates of COVID and how transmission was progressing, if we didn't know about the value of data before, we definitely, I think, all understood it during, during COVID. But if you look around and look at the fact that the top 25 schools of public administration do not require the teaching of data science, if you mm-hmm. look at the fact that in government, we have the majority of our government, only 5% of people are under the age of 30 in our civilian government, So if age is any proxy for mastery of new technologies, digital skills, big data, um, you know, we really are, I think, lacking in the way that we're training and teaching people to use these new tools that are available to us. You know, our training law in government dates to 1958, our training framework. Uh, Sounds a little old to me. Yeah, there's a need for a refresh and really looking at what are the skills that we're teaching people inside government. Um, But it's not limited to government. Look, in universities, we're teaching people to become the next Mark Zuckerberg. We're teaching everybody to become entrepreneurs and how to start a business, which is wonderful. But we also need to equip people with the skills who want to do things like tackle climate change or tackle racial inequities or tackle some of these big societal problems, and all the more so really in business. That's Beth Simone Novak, Chief Innovation Officer of the State of New Jersey, former U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Open Government under President Obama. Her new book, Solving Public Problems, A Practical Guide to Fix Our Government and Change Our World. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, what's better than the Statue of Liberty? How about two of them? We'll explain. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
The Statue of Liberty, you know, it was a gift from France to the United States. It made its way in pieces across the Atlantic. It arrived in New York Harbor back in June of 1885. Fast forward nearly 140 years later, and a second Statue of Liberty is stepping onto U.S. soil. It's smaller, and its trip over from France, it was much easier. But it came just in time for the July 4th celebration of U.S. independence. We got the scoop on how this all happened and why from Jesse Brackenberry, President and CEO of the Liberty Ellis Island Foundation. So this is um, from an original mold from the sculptor of um, the original statue. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a one sixteenth model, Bartoli, and um, they cast a number of these uh, about ten years ago. And so this one has been on display. And um, the, the idea was of the French ambassadors to the United States, and um, he's happy to have it at its residence, and we're happy to. Um, to have a, a short stay in between. Right, very symbolic of the relationship between the United States and France specifically, and, and it really goes back to the roots of this nation. Having said that, you really get a feel of the roots of this nation if you go to Ellis Island. I've been there. Uh, I've had family come through, but I've had family also come through Canada. But you get to Ellis Island, you go to the statue, and you really get a feel of what it was like many years ago and the trek and trip that many immigrants took to get to this country. Yeah, absolutely. It is, I think, a really affecting um, place to visit. And um, it's a single ticket that gets you to both Liberty Island for a visit and to Ellis Island for a visit. And um, you you can walk in the footsteps of the 12 million um, immigrants who came through the doors of Ellis Island um, between 1884 and, and 1954. And it, um, it's a, a, a pretty magical experience. And right now is a great time to go. The, the observation deck at the pedestal was reopened for the first time post-pandemic. And the crowds are not yet fully back. And so you've got, uh, you kind of have it to yourself a little bit. Well, it's interesting that you say that because you know what things are serious when something like the Statue of Liberty gets shut down, right? Because it is open most of the time. If tourists are coming to the New York metro area, it's a must-see. And in a normal year, and this has been anything but, at least the past year has been anything but normal, it is crowded. Absolutely. In a typical year, we would get um, four and a half million visitors who would take a ticket out to take a ferry out to the islands. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the statue and Ellis were shut down for some time. And even now, um, levels are only approaching 50 percent. Now, this is the July 4th weekend, and it's always a big weekend. And with the Little Sister Statue of Liberty, we're really hopeful that people will come out now and make their plans to come uh, for the rest of the year. I was curious if the, the smaller statue, which from what I understand uh, is 10 feet tall, a 16th of her bigger sister's size. It is uh, bronze, and uh, so there are some similarities there. But uh, I do wonder about... You know, when people go there, remind everyone you can go in the statue, but when you go to Ellis Island, I mean, you really, there's so much that you can see. It's very interactive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Our foundation, the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation, worked on the original renovation of the statue and on the renovation, restoration of um, Ellis Island to open the um, the museum that's there. And so both of these can be visited, and it really is very interactive. Um, last, 
two summers ago, we built the new Statue of Liberty Museum, where you can see the original torch mm -hmm. and um, an inspiring film that is not just about the building of um, the Statue of Liberty, but about what freedom has meant to us since. Well, and I remember when it was restored. I mean, you talk about the original torch, because there was a point where the, the original statue, it was in trouble, and it really needed to have some serious restoration. Absolutely. And so um, that work, through the generosity of the American people, um, was uh, the, the statue was restored. And the original torch, um, the original vision was that it would have gold leaf on it. And that wasn't um, realized. And then over the years, um, holes were poked in it to create lighting. And um, the, that torch because um, it wasn't originally designed for this, leaked and corroded and, and had to be removed. And in the 1986 restoration, um, they put up the gold leaf torch that we have now. But that original torch with its um, uh, glowing interior um, is on display at the Statue of Liberty Museum now. That was Jesse Brackenberry, President and CEO of the Liberty Ellis Island Foundation. By the way, there are over 100 replicas of the Statue of Liberty around the world. That's according to the National Conservatory of Arts and Crafts in Paris. More than 30 are in France, including a handful in Paris. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, he was once just a guy who tutored his cousin. Well, today his organization teaches millions of students around the globe. The founder of Khan Academy is up next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to wrap up this week with one more disruptor and innovator to tell you about. We last talked with him at a really tough time. It was more than a year ago. He is someone who has brought innovation to education, continued to do so during the pandemic. We're talking about Sal Khan, the founder of Khan Academy, the nonprofit that has set out to provide a great education to all students around the globe. And with more than a billion children worldwide impacted by school closures during the pandemic, Khan Academy stepped in in a big way, providing their free resources. Last year, uh, it was one of those moments where we looked left and looked right and realized that uh, this was us, <laughs> that people were going <laughs> to need something to get them through all of the school closures and the disruptions, keep them learning over the summer. And we saw our traffic uh, go about 3x of normal. Normally, we see about 30 million learning minutes per day. We saw that grow to about 85, 90. Wow. And the, the pandemic kept going longer than folks expected. Uh, they continued to lean on it. In 2020, we saw 12 billion learning minutes on Khan Academy. About half of that, 6 billion, is students and families coming on their own. 6 billion has been what we call teacher-directed, teachers uh, getting students to use it. And we've just been trying to keep up with the demand. We've accelerated a whole series of courses. We're going to be launching science within the year. We've always had science on Khan Academy, but this is comprehensive practice, assessment, feedback, middle school, high school, early college, chemistry, biology, physics, econ, other things. Um, so we're excited about that. And on top of that, uh, as part of the pandemic response, this time last year, we, we started a prototype, another nonprofit called Schoolhouse.World, to give everyone free tutoring. And since then, that's grown. That's gotten some uh, philanthropic funding behind it. We've had a bunch of states sign on because everyone's talking about tutoring, but no one knows really how to scale it. And the way we're scaling it is 
we're getting high-quality vetted volunteers from all over the world to tutor people from all over the world. It's incredible, the network that you've created. You were founded, I think, right back in 07. I remember doing a piece on you as you had kind of started out. What's changed in terms of the work that you're doing, the groups that you're reaching, and how people are looking at you and your role in education? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, back in 2007, <laughs> you know, there's multiple possible starting points for Khan Academy was 2004, I started tutoring family. 2005, I started making software for them. 2006, I started making videos. And so 2007 was the very early days of Khan Academy. I was still working as my day job as an analyst at a hedge fund. And um, by, you know, it wasn't until 2009 that I quit, quit that day job. And in 2010, we got our first real philanthropic funding to become an organization. But what's changed in the macro environment is you know, some of these ideas that learning should not be bound by time or space or that personalized learning or that you could get really high-quality learning and practice on the Internet, those were avant-garde ideas in 2007. Now those are mainstream ideas, and the, the pandemic accelerated it. Another big, I would say, condition that has changed is in 2007 it was unusual, even for reasonably well-resourced schools, to have a decent Internet access and devices over the last 10 years, at least in the school setting, because of programs like E-Rate, you've actually seen that close, but then the pandemic has put a spotlight on the digital divide at home, but hopefully it's accelerated people wanting to address that. Mm-hmm. In terms of us, you know, in 2007, it was me in my closet <laughs> doing it as a hobby, and you know, now we have 120 million registered users. There's, there's 50, 60 languages. We're trying to cover all the subjects and grades. We're thinking about even ways that Mastery on Khan Academy can help you get into college or, or help you get a job. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we're continuing to expand the number of subjects. We're going into tutoring uh, with that related entity called Schoolhouse. So, yeah, it's, there's a lot going on. Well, you know, it stuck out to just many things, but you also talked about the digital divide, and I think it's interesting on a day where we had President Biden come out and, you know, hopeful about his physical infrastructure plan, you know, and that includes, you know, the digital infrastructure that's in our country. How much from what you are seeing, the schools you're talking to, the individuals you're talking to, how much of that creates a real uh, obstacle when it comes to learning in this country? You're not going to be able to engage in the types of things that we're talking about, leverage a Khan Academy, leverage a schoolhouse.world, unless uh, you have some access. And we saw this during the pandemic that it was hard for schools to figure out even how to create a hybrid learning program or a distance learning program. But it was that much harder if you're in a urban school district where 20, 30, 40 percent of students did not have sufficient access. And even in cases where people might have had a computer at home or a cell phone, you, you still would have had a situation where five family members would have to share that same device or students didn't just have the right supports at home. Their parents might have been essential workers. And so I, I think, uh, you know, by putting a spotlight on that, where people have done some pretty heroic efforts at, at trying to solve it. Hey, what I want to ask you, too, is summer programs, summer school. We see some school districts providing learning over the summer as a way to catch up. Uh, from some learning missed as a result of schools being shut down by the pandemic. $1.2 billion in federal funding has been allocated for what they are calling evidence-based summer enrichment programs. What summer programs, what summer schools, what summer learning makes a difference in your view? I think with all things, it's something where, one, you have to do it regularly. Uh, you almost have to create a habit of it. And for us, it, if, you can, if students can engage 
you know, the technical term is in their zone of proximal development, which is a fancy way of saying they're learning edge. If it's too hard, they're not going to be able to learn much. And if it's too easy, they're not going to be learning much. And what technology and what Khan Academy has always been focused on is how do we help a teacher? How do we help an educator or a parent or even a student on their own? How do we help them practice and finish any unfinished learning right at their learning edge? So we have Camp Con, which is a summer program. Anyone can use it around the world. It's free. It's all not for profit. Where we're saying, hey, come spend 15, 20 minutes a day. Build that habit. Learn at your, at your learning edge. We have what's called get ready for grade level courses. If you want to bone up and refresh the things you need going into the next year. Or you can go into the grade level courses and get a head start on things. If you do that, and I recommend that to anyone I meet, I try to do that with my own children, uh, you're, you're going to have a leg up when you get back to school. Now, everything isn't just about the academics. We know that we just got out of a pandemic. People have felt socially isolated. So also, the more time, especially younger kids, can get outside with friends now that the, the restrictions are starting to loosen, that's going to be really important as well. We've been talking a lot about the learning loss and the academic stuff. That matters, and I've called that a disaster recovery project going into this summer and next year. But I think that social-emotional side is also not getting enough attention. You figured out really how well to connect with students in the online world. We know the online learning experience, though, especially for younger kids, wasn't always so productive and didn't work so well during the pandemic. So what's the key to getting it right to getting it or to doing it wrong? Well, I think, in, well, I think there's a couple of pitfalls that people get into when they think about online or technologies. A lot of times they think about the technology first uh, mm-hmm. and they say, okay, let's just use the technology. Let's do something modern. And that's the, that's, that's the backwards way of looking at it. You should say, what's your pedagogical goal here? Is your pedagogical goal to allow for personalization, to let students learn at their own time and pace, to let them finish any unfinished learning they might have had? Then think about what tools. The tools might be chalk. It might be the human being in the room or it might be software. It might be uh, a Khan Academy or something like that. I also think a lot matters on the implementation of the idea or of the technology. It was a blessing that Khan Academy started off as a project for me tutoring my family. That allowed me to bring a, I would say, an eccentricity, an informality, uh, authenticity to the content, whether it's the software or the videos, that wouldn't have come natural to a large <laughs> company. Right. Um, and even now, as we've grown and scaled, I try to maintain that with our team. I remind folks that when when you have a distance between yourself and the learner over time and space because of the technology, it's even more to let your it's even more important to let your humanity shine. Most people do the opposite. As soon as the camera's on, they start talking like a robot or a GPS device. It's even more important when you're doing a video or when you're writing software that you're passionate about it, that it shows in the work. If you don't sound excited, the student's not going to be excited. If you don't let yourself be low stress and comfortable and laugh at yourself, well, then it's going to be stressful for the student. Uh, if you're not interested, the student's not going to be interested. So how do, you th- how do you believe that the educational system, well entrenched in this country, and I know you work on a global basis, but I'm just curious about the U.S. where we know there's tons of money spent, but depending on where you live and your access, you can get a much better education than others. How is it, can something like Khan Academy, and how are you working with schools that are maybe undersourced, under-resourced uh, as well, that can kind of up the game for the kids who are at those schools? We've seen over the last 10 years, there's 50 efficacy studies done on Khan Academy. I believe we're the most researched technology, ed technology platform out there, that if students are able to engage in their zone of proximal development, in their learning edge, 
for even 30, 45 minutes a week that they're growing 20, 30% faster. But we realize that it's great that all of these teachers on their, on their own, hundreds of thousands of teachers and parents and students have decided to use it in a grassroots way. But if we really want to serve all students, we have to work more formally with districts. And we have to integrate with other things they're, they're doing. We have a partnership with NWEA, which is a standardized testing body, mm-hmm. administers something called the MAP Growth Assessment. It's taken by 20% of students. Historically, one of the biggest critiques of standardized testing is, okay, it's great to measure where you are, but then what do you do with that? So our partnership with the NWEA is all about, hey, you take that standardized test, and then that can inform what your learning edge is. That can inform a personalized learning plan on Khan Academy, and that's what we've been doing systemically with districts. That's Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy. Check out that full conversation at Bloomberg.com. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser for Tim Stenovic and our whole Bloomberg Business Week team. Be sure to tune in to our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. And you can also see Tim on Bloomberg Quick Take, available on Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great holiday weekend, everyone. Stay safe. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.